0: grab your Bibles, and let's go to Genesis chapter 25. If you do not have a Bible and uh, would like to uh, have one, um, Danielle can get you a blue Bible from Spark. And uh, if you do not actually own a Bible, consider it our gift to you. You guys can take it. How are you guys doing? I'm good. It's a beautiful day. May all Februarys and Januarys never be like this ever again. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> A couple uh, couple things that we wanted to share. We've been in the middle of a Genesis series... And if you've missed this, uh, any of the talks, all of them are on the podcast, and all of them are online. So we encourage you to get a hold of those and to catch up a little bit. We started in Genesis chapter one, verse one, and it's taken us several months to get to this particular point. And I just wanted to share with you just a few comments on the series that we are in. Number one, we hope that you start to see yourself in this grand story that we are talking about, all the way to the very beginning in the creation of this world. Your story right here is connected deeply to that story. And so we hope that this isn't just a study of a Bible study of things that happened a long time ago. We hope that you start to see how the narratives and the lessons and the teachings are actually reflective in how you live your life today, about how you exemplify your faith even to this day. So we hope that you start to see yourself In the story, as part of the story, as a critical character in this large story that God's been telling ever since the very beginning. And we hope that you see that it wasn't just true then, but it is also true now. This comes from a quote from an author that I read many, many years ago. Lawrence Kushner once wrote that Genesis wasn't written to tell us that it happened, but that it happens. That all the things that we read through these ancient stories are not just events that happened in the past. But things that continue to happen today. If you just take the classic example of Adam and Eve eating from the tree of the the knowledge of good and evil, each and every one of us do that still to this day a deep desire to want to know what is good and evil. We feel like we distance ourselves from God, and then we shame, we feel the shame, we cover ourselves up, and then we try to game the whole system kind of deal. That story that we tell still happens today. We hope that you feel better about your personal journey. I hope that as you read the stories of these jacked up people that are our ancestors and our like fathers of the faith, and you go, can, I, can you believe he did that? It makes you feel better about your family and your crazy uncle and about how you did. I can't believe I did that. Yes, we can't believe you did that either. But guess what? All the way since the very beginning, people of God, people who have been created in God's image have been doing wild and crazy all sorts of things of adjectives I cannot name, and I hope that you feel better about your journey, we feel better about your story, that there is nothing in your story that surprises God or is outside of the ups and the downs and the ebbs and flows and of the good and the bad and the evil that happens in all of these stories. I mean, Genesis talks about how the entire earth was full of violence and Hamas and just all sorts of wickedness. Oh, so if I have that in my life, guess what? God can still use you as well. So we hope you feel better about yourself. It can be very good counseling, good therapy for you to read these stories and uh, see how those people have acted. And we hope that you also feel helped and encouraged along the way, that just as God reached in and redeemed those stories of those people, God is still once again reaching into your life and redeeming your life as well. And then, lastly, one of my favorite things, and why, one of the reasons why our church is called Spark, is that we hope that the learning and the discovery begins when the sermon ends. That the teaching time that we have here isn't where you walk away going, oh, I finally now know. We also hope that you walk away going, oh, I have a whole new area of discovery, a whole new area of learning, a whole new window has been opened up, and we get to discover even More from these stories. We've talked a little bit about how difficult it has actually been for us in this Genesis series because we're skipping over so many things to try to give a little bit more of a global perspective of these stories. Well, that's what the rest of the week is for. These, you know, the 30 or 35 minutes that we have in the teaching time is just not going to do these stories justice. We hope. That The sermons that we give, the teachings that we give, launch you out into a whole new area of, oh, those are new questions and new discoveries and new teachings and new lessons that I can learn. So, some comments on this series. Today's title is entitled, Pregnant with Possibilities, and we're going to take a look at the story of Rebecca, who is pregnant with Jacob and Esau in Genesis chapter 25. We're going to encourage you, if you have it, go to Genesis chapter 25. We're going to start reading from verse 19. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean from Padam Aram, and sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red. And his whole body was hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I am famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I am about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. We'll end our reading there and try to discern a couple things that are going on. I'll highlight a couple elements, perhaps some of the things that they might mean or the things that they might symbolize, and then we'll see what we can possibly conclude. Again, this is just barely scratching the surface of the story because as you know, this is only chapter 25. There's like 25 more chapters of Genesis. There's a lot more that is writing on what happens in this jostling in the womb. So I'll try to point out a couple things, and then hopefully that will launch us into further discussion. The first thing is this, that they are jostling in the womb. There's the battle going on inside of Rebekah. Now, that word for jostling might have a whole bunch of different connotations. It's difficult to really nail it down. Some translations say struggling. Some say Jostling. But other translations and other connotations of this word might actually mean mistreat or to oppress. And so there's something going on inside of the womb that is not just sibling rivalry. This is more than that. This is about something that has to do with one person mistreating or oppressing the other. And one is trying to gain ground. One is trying to be the person on top. One is trying to be the ultimate person of the two. So that's going on, and Rebecca knows this. She feels this. I'm sure, of course, I've never been pregnant, but for those of you who have, I'm sure some of you have felt what that is like inside. So not only can you physically feel, but she also spiritually or somehow from intuition understands that there's something going on here. And then Rebecca asks this brilliant question. She asks, why am I Dot, dot, dot. Now, to get behind the words that we have in English, sometimes what's helpful is to compare multiple English translations. Here's a couple examples. The NIV has, why is this happening to me? And that's in the English Standard Version as well as the NIV. The New Revised Standard Version has, why do I live? The Net Bible has the phrase, I'm not so sure I want to be pregnant. And the message Bible is, why go on living? So there's all sorts of interesting possible translations. Most Bibles that I've seen, if you look at the footnote, it actually says, meaning of Hebrew is uncertain. We're not exactly sure what Rebecca is saying here. And the reason why, and the reason why we have multiple translations is because this sentence is an incomplete sentence. (laughs) It is literally, so why this am I? And then she moves on to the inquiry. And I just, when I read that story, feeling like there's something inside of you, something that's jostling, something that's one side is oppressing the other. There's one thing inside of you trying to beat out the other side. I can imagine this question comes up. Why me? why am I alive? Why am I carrying this burden? What's really going on? And what I love about Rebecca's question is not only her honesty, but kind of the poetic way in which this is constructed. Why am I... You almost don't have words to complete the sentence. And I'll bet you many of us in this room have felt like there's a struggle, a challenge, there's something jostling within us, and we're trying to resolve it. One side is trying to beat out the other side, and you're just stuck in this place, and you're like... Why am I, and it's really difficult to even complete that sentence. So the honesty of Rebecca's question, I think, is very poignant. What is interesting about what comes next, though, that helps us understand why does she not complete the sentence, is because she moves immediately from this question of why am I, to she goes and asks of the Lord. She moves from this place of not even being able to finish her question because it's so agonizing to, I'm going to go ask God. This question of Rebecca, because it falls short, is not a question of pity or of like existential angst. This is not a question of why me, of all people. This isn't a question of pity upon oneself. A question to God like, come on, God, what's wrong? What, why did you choose? Why is this happening to me? That's not this question, what I would suggest. What I would suggest is Rebecca's question, because it doesn't end, because it kind of moves immediately into the inquiry, is this is a question of, I actually want to find out some reason, some meaning. I need an answer to this question. I'm asking something much bigger than the why me, the pity party. It's just, have you ever felt that way? You ever felt like you asked the question and like, there's thousands of other possibilities. God, I've been good. I've been this. I've been that. I've been trying to stay righteous. I've been doing everything right. Why me? That's one equation of a question. But the other equation of the question is, I really actually want to find out meaning purpose, strategy, God's intent, God's potential redemption in whatever it is that I'm going through. She went to go and inquire. This isn't just a question of pity. Now, there are those moments in the Bible where it's like, why me? Job, I think, would be one of them. But what's neat about Rebecca's question is in this particular sense of, why am I And then she went to go inquire of the Lord is simply this. She went to go try to make sense of what was really going on. The word for inquire here is the word, it comes from the root word to study or to investigate, to seek out. And I would suggest to you that there's a lesson here. There is one kind of question, which is the self-pity existential crisis kind of a question. The question of, I'm so good, why is this thing happening to me? Why is this thing happening to me right now? (laughs) But then there's the other question, which is, why is this happening? What is going on? What could I possibly seek out? What could I investigate? Is there something here that I could take away? Is there meaning here? Is there purpose here? Is there something behind the thing that's going on that could possibly teach me something? And I would say that there is a very distinct difference between those two platforms of questions. And one of the things that I think is brilliant about this Rebecca question is it's not a demanding of God for an answer as to why this is happening to me. It's a seeking out. It's an inquiry. I want to investigate, okay, what's really going on? And you're ready and willing to accept whatever you find in that study. In that inquiry. And I would suggest to you that if we just shifted our thinking, just that one little click, that one little shift, that might change radically how we think and how we relate to God. Rather than, God, why are you doing this to me? To, okay, God, what's going on? What's happening? Tell me. There's something here. There's things moving. There's things happening. What is that all about? Rebecca goes to inquire. She goes to try to make sense. She is seeking out meaning, purpose. She's investigating. And if we took on that kind of attitude with the things and the challenges that are going on in our life, I can imagine that could possibly radically change the answers that we seek out. If we just simply ask the pity question, I'm not so sure any answer is ever going to do no matter what the answer or response is, it's still going to be, yeah, but why me? It's kind of like a three-year-old. Yeah, but why? Yeah, but why? Yeah, but why? Yeah, but why? 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 Versus, okay, God, my heart is open. I'm seeking out. I'm inquiring. Teach me. What's going on here? What am I not getting? I want to find out. So she went to inquire. And this word inquire has the same kind of connotation the prophets, and in the Greek mythology of seeking after an oracle. It's seeking after a divine word, a revelation. Okay, God, I want you. I don't just want an answer to kind of placate my inquiry. I really want to know what you have to say about this. So God says to her, there are two nations, two nations rumbling in your belly. The first is Jacob, the second is Esau. Jacob is a smooth character. Jacob's name, uh, a lot of people have uh, commented, I've even taught it myself, supplanter, he's kind of cunning, he's uh, that kind of a, a kind of a guy. But if you read carefully, the scriptures talk about how he's a mild man. He's really complete. Uh, the word that is used in the Hebrew might mean perfect. He's just exactly how he's supposed to be. And then he stays in camp he's just chill. Doesn't need to go out. He's happy where he is. And the reason why he's happy where he is is because he's not easily moved necessarily by the flesh, by instinct, by impulse, by those kinds of things that well up within us, because his job ultimately is to be a protector. That's Jacob's job, or the meaning possibly behind his name. Now, Esau is a hairy man, And what's fascinating about Esau's name is he's called Esau because he's hairy, but the word construct means that he's a fully formed man, which I can only conclude means that any man who is hairy is a fully formed man, which makes me a little insecure regarding certain ethnicities in this room. So anyway, I don't know, uh, know, especially since I've been growing this for the last two months. Um, So Esau's name means hairy, and it means fully formed. He's also known as red, which kind of has this connotation of earthy. The word red comes from the same word that means ground. It's grunting, kind of brutish, almost boorish kind of a thing. And then he says, give me some of that food to Jacob. The phraseology there is the exact same phraseology that you would use to feed an animal. And so what's happening with Jacob and Esau, possibly one of the pictures, is Jacob is the the mild-mannered. He understands his place. He knows and understands where he's supposed to be. He is cunning, no doubt. We're going to get to those stories. But ultimately, he's there to protect and to guard and to just be smooth. Whereas Esau is grunting, Harry, me, want food. Oh, I'm fully formed. Look at all my hair. Kind of a deal. And he acts a little bit more like an animal, which is exemplified in the story of, like, he's a hunter, and he comes in from the hunt, and he's starving. Like, he's like, oh, I I must have left my hunt way out there. So, Jacob, that stew looks good. Give me some of that kind of a deal. So, we have these two little things going on. It's possible, then, that what is going on, or one of the pictures, one of the images of what's happening, is two very opposite ways of living out, seeing out, How to live in this world. Two nations are in your womb. Two separate peoples shall issue from your body. One shall be mightier than the other. Who's that going to be? That's going to be Esau. He's going to be the strong, brutish, animal-like. He's going to be the stronger one. But the older will serve the younger. Two nations two possibilities. Now, if you read this story with those definitions, it's very easy to walk away and to understand what is happening inside of Rebecca. two opposite things. Now, if you read some history and you read other kind of mythologies and other histories, you start to realize that For years and years and years, humanity has tried to figure out what are the two things inside of each and every one of us that is constantly wrestling with each other. Plato talked about and wrote about the chariot allegory. And in Plato's chariot allegory, a chariot who is the intellect, the soul, this is his allegory, this is his story, is trying to drive the chariot, which is your life. One of these horses, however, is this rational, moral, thoughtful kind of a person That's the part of you that's trying to pull this chariot. But the other part is this lustful, the appetite. It's just the instinct. It's the thing that immediately wells up. And even in Plato's construct of this chariot allegory, your life is being pulled by two completely different impulses, two completely different instincts, two very different ways of responding and reacting to this world. Could it possibly be? That what is happening inside of Rebecca is a teaching or a lesson for us that inside of each and every one of us is something animalistic, is something brutish, is something very earthy, is something very impulsive, appetite. And then the other thing which is trying to protect us stays in the tent, relax, smooth. We have this even in our culture today in a couple, one possible example. Hello, I'm a Mac. And I'm a PC. What do you have there? Oh, I was just looking at this photo book. I made an iPhone. Want to see it? Oh, sure. I'll take a look. Why not? Well, go on. Rip it in half. Nonsense. It's beautiful. Ask how he made it. Oh, you don't care about arts and crafts? You like work. Would it hurt you to loosen your necktie every once in a while and have a little fun? Oh, fun. We tried that once. It was nothing but pain and frustration. So, what do you think? It's good. Throwback to 2006. 2006. Holy cow. I remember when those were brand new. Two things warring. We're all familiar with the angel and the devil. Two things that are warring inside of us. How many of us feel in your life, in your situation, in the decisions that you have to make? Maybe in a circumstance in your life, there are two things fighting each other. One of the first things is to be impulsive, to be earthy, to be instinctual. This I I need to get on this right now because that person so and so and I and then there's that other side of you that says, "Wait a second. Let me think about this for a second. Is that really wise? Is that the right direction to go? Let me think through the consequences." In youth adolescent development, we call this the prefrontal cortex. And some people suggest that the prefrontal cortex doesn't even fully develop until some people are like 25 or 30. I would suggest for some people, maybe 60 or 70, where this prefrontal cortex is supposed to determine what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, consequences. And then you have this other part, the amygdala, where it's just like impulse, instinct. And the other parts of your brain that are doing that. And then you have the front side of your brain. Wait a second. Think about this. Hold on. Pause. There are two nations warring inside, I would say, each and every one of us. Hopefully that starts some thinking about what this story may be illuminating, Because this story ultimately takes off into what these two nations eventually become. And then the story ends with, or this particular segment ends with this phrase, and the older shall serve the younger. The older shall serve the younger. Now, this should throw all of the lights on your dashboard on because this is a complete reversal of the way things are supposed to be. In the biblical world, there's a very clear hierarchy of how things are to be laid down and passed on from generation to generation. And the older is always, is always the primary inheritor of the family of the father's goods and inheritance. And so for this phrase, the older shall serve the younger to, for the younger to then usurp the older in this particular way, is completely opposite of the way it's supposed to be. This is in some ways God flipping the script. Why is it that the younger is going to be on top rather than the older? Because that's not the way it's supposed to be. Now I apologize for the Legos one more. Hang on. Part of what is. <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I tried to find a better image, but honestly, there's the Legos are just outdoing every image I could find on on the internet. So, <laughs> if you if you notice. <laughs> He. All right, let's close in prayer, I guess. that's. <laughs> now, what's going on here? Esau comes out first. He's the hairy one. But the Bible distinctly talks about Jacob. The younger one is grabbing hold of the heel. Now, there's lots of possible interpretations. If you take into account Rebecca's prayer, the flipping of what God is doing, where the older is going to serve the younger... And the jostling of the two, the two nations that are warring inside of her. The grabbing of the heel might simply be Jacob saying, no, don't go first. He's trying to be the protector. He knows or has heard about this prophecy. And he's trying to hold on and say, it's not supposed to be like this. But yet, the older Esau is still the stronger one. He's the one that gets out first. He's the one that makes it to the finish line first. And Jacob's just holding on. That's usually what happens to all of us, I think. Is that that animalistic, instinctive, that impulse? That happens first. And then tagging along, hanging on, saying, no, 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 is the Jacob impulse. Let's stop. Let's think about this for a second. A um, couple years ago, I did a very bad thing in the parking lot because I'm a very impatient driver, which is why I don't have any Christian bumper stickers on my car. <laughs> and there was somebody who was waiting for somebody to get out, but, and I'm sorry, I'm going to confess, they, they were like parked in the middle of the lane rather than pulling over to the side. They were parked right in the middle so nobody else could get around, and I was, I was a bad boy and I was impatient. Knowing that my big Astro van could get by on one side perfectly fine I decided to go and skim around this person and our mirrors went like this. (laughs) So you're like, you're an idiot. Um, So the mirrors went like this. And I was like, this is sweet because, you know, I'm a good driver. I'm a really good driver. What I didn't account for is that there was a curb on the right side. So that as the mirrors went like this, my right tire hit the curb and the (laughs) right across her mirror. And this, and, and have you ever had that feeling where you go, you're an idiot. And I just felt so like, oh, okay. So I pull over, I pull forward, I park the car. And by the way, if you, this ever happens to you, just get out and apologize. This is your first kind of impulse. So I get out of the car and I'm about ready to say, I am so sorry. And, and I just, it was my fault. I just need to own it kind of a deal. She gets out of her car And she starts um, saying things that I'm not allowed to say. She calls me a donkey and decides to use the King James Version. Uh, (laughs) And she is livid, as mad as heck as could be. Esau, first thing out of the gate. The thing that I want to say to you right now. Well, I was owning it. I apologized. It was totally my fault. I'm never going to do that ever again. I just apologized, apologized, apologized. I'm so, so sorry. Extremely I'm, you know, I'm so sorry. I've got insurance. I'll pay for it. Whatever kind of a deal. I, I'm inconvenienced your day. That and kind of a deal. So we're exchanging information. And in about five to seven minutes she had a kid in the car, by the way. Her son, I can only presume. is probably about five or six years old. Hearing these explicitives coming my way. And then about five to seven minutes, after my overt apology, she turned, and I saw, I've never seen this happen before in anybody. She turned completely in her demeanor and began apologizing to me for the way that she was acting. And I was like, that was an amazing shift. Now, I still own 100% of that. But what I saw in her in that day, I think is an exemplification of this principle. There's something that comes out the gate. The first thing, the hairy thing, the earthy thing. And what's hanging on, what's hanging on is the other thing that is trying to protect, trying to stay in the tent, trying to be cool. And this is exemplified no better, I think, than in this story right here. They stole it from us. Sneaky little witches, Wicked, traipsy, first. No. No. Master. Master? Yes, precious false. They will cheat you, hurt you, lie. Master's my friend. You don't have any friends. Nobody likes you. Not listening. Not listening. You're a liar. I'm a thief. S- no. Murderer. It's very scary. It Sorry. Go away. <laughs> I hate you. I hate you. Where would you be without me, Hello. Yeah. It was me! We survived because of me! and the race is precious gone, come, Gone Smeagol free and the older will serve the younger Rebecca asked this question why am I what's really going on and every single one of us have had to wrestle with this question What's really happening inside of here? Why am I even alive? Because I really, honestly, to have this inside of me might be a little bit too much. But wait a second. This isn't just about why me. Give me some meaning. Give me some purpose. Let me seek out and study. Let me see what God is really trying to say. And inside of each and every one of us, there are these two things. Constantly warring and battling. Constantly trying to make their way out. One's going to be predominant. And the one that thinks it's going to be predominant. And I love the scene there from Lord of the Rings. Master now looks after us. And when the master looks after us, the older is going to serve the younger. And those are the possibilities. That is what is possible inside of each and every one of you. That is what is possible in this church. That is what is possible in humanity. That is what is possible in these stories. And every single one of us have that opportunity. Not just a burden, an opportunity. One footnote. Some of you might question this message. Wonderful! We always love that. Because Jacob and Esau later on in life, in their struggles, in their wrestling, do reconcile together. They come together later on in the story. We'll get there a couple chapters later. So I'll just plant that footnote in you. What does it mean for these two sides to come together? I'll just leave you with this footnote that I thought was poignant to that point. F. Scott Fitzgerald said, the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. And this is what's going to happen throughout the rest of biblical history. Two opposite things are going to wrestle with each other. So that is why I call this pregnant with possibilities. Let me close in a word of prayer. God, thank you for this church and for your word and these stories. And I pray that all of us would be empowered and encouraged by the possibilities that lie within each and every one of us. May our hearts and our souls be captivated once again by this flipping of the script that you do in all of us. And as you become more and more our master, as you become more and more our God, we will see more and more of the transformation of the two things within us and that that older may ultimately serve the younger. And I pray this in your name. Amen.